Hey, y'all, this is Mary Nahorniak. When I'm not singing to my daughter and talking music with the guys from Rocking the Suburbs, I'm listening to Jesse Jackson on Set Lusting Bruce. everyone and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music and mostly his fans. I am your host Jesse Jackson and today I'm taking a page from my other podcast Doctor Who and we're doing a very timey-wimey episode. Thanks to the miracle of time zones, I am talking to the future, even though it hasn't happened yet. Uh, I, <laughs> it is Monday where Gabriel is at. So um, good morning, Gabriel. How are you? Good morning. I'm very good, thanks. Um, yep, it's Monday morning in Melbourne, so fresh and early for us. Yeah, and so um, it's Sunday night for me, and we worked out a time to talk. Uh, you know, um, we're going to talk for a little bit. Gabriel has done a wonderful audio drama that um, will be of interest to um, you regular listeners. But um, I want to talk a little bit before we get to that, just some general discussion. So why don't you tell us a little about yourself, Gabriel? Give us your elevator pitch. Oh, man, how do, how do I make it succinct and sound not um, not like uh, like I'm pretentiously trying to sell myself? Um, so so I'm a, I'm a Melbourne-based author and playwright. Um, so, so, yeah, I live in Melbourne. I've got a couple of published novels that are kind of like – so Boone Shepard and Boone Shepard's American Adventure, they're young adult adventure novels. It's kind of like if you imagine Tintin meets Doctor Who set in the world of Lemony Snicket is is basically the, the succinct pitch for that. And um I uh I work with a um I work with a production company in Melbourne called Bitten by Productions and we do a lot of independent theatre work. So I've written quite a few shows with them. Um and then outside of that, I'm also one of the hosts of the podcast Movie Maintenance, which is basically what it sounds like. We fix bad movies. However, at the time of recording, um, I believe we're about two two weeks away from Movie Maintenance actually coming to an end, um, at which point it's going to be replaced with a brand new podcast that we're going to be starting with the same team. Okay. Uh, why are you deciding to revamp, so to speak, or reboot the franchise in terms of movie discussions? Look, it's I, – I guess it's been a long time coming. So so the way – anybody who's ever heard Movie Maintenance will know the way it works is that ostensibly every week we have a different, you know, bad or flawed movie that we pitch a better version of. But at a certain point the show kind of became a lot more – and this is actually sort of how the genesis of my Springsteen radio play came about. Um, the show became – we became a lot more obsessed with – kind of, you know, pitching, like, for example, pitch your ideal Star Wars movie, pitch your ideal biopic, which turned out to be my Springsteen um, pitch that ended up becoming the stage show and then the radio play. Um, and so at a certain point, it kind of stopped being movie maintenance and started being more, I guess, like a platform for us to sort of play in different playgrounds as writers. And then that sort of led into our spin-off uh, audio drama show. And then kind of it gets to a point where you sort of realize that you're you're sick of talking about things that you don't like. And when you talk about the things that you do like, it's not really movie maintenance because, you know, you're not, you know, there's not much point in fixing things that are already great. So we hit this point where, and also I think there's like, there's sort of this, there's this implicit arrogance if like you're, I mean, we're all, we're all working writers on the show. 
And, you know, if you go to an industry event and you meet, you know, some important producers like TV or film producers and you're talking to them and they're saying, oh, what do you do? And you're like, I'm on a podcast. And they're like, oh, what's your podcast? And you're like, we we fix bad movies. And it it comes off as incredibly conceited. So it got to a point where we're like, is is doing this podcast for the sake of our broader careers kind of more trouble than it's worth? And also, do we do we even have that much left to do? Because once you've kind of once you've sort of played in the playground of all your favorite franchises, it can be hard to invest the same passion, particularly if it's like, oh, let's fix Justice League. Who cares about Justice League? So basically, we kind of thought it'd be really cool to come up with a new show that essentially gives us the platform to to talk about things that we like, to talk about the things that we enjoy talking about, to discuss the franchises and the stories and the films that we love, and also kind of just have a bit more fun and be a bit looser. So, I mean, yeah, like a lot of the fans of the show sort of contacted us and were quite upset about it ending. The way I see it, it's not it's not so much ending as it's just kind of rebranding as a show that I think we can all enjoy a bit more is probably the best way to put it. Well, I, I have not listened to the podcast, but I'm going to Stitcher right now and kind of looking at episodes and I could see um, there'd be a lot of fun discussion. I know that um, I was listening to a couple of Doctor Who podcasts and they reached the point where they were complaining about every episode. Not minor changes, but every episode they just were complaining about it. And I went, you know, I don't want to listen to people complain about something I love. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's tiresome, isn't it? Like it you, is. All I need to all you need to think about is like, you know, I mean, look at the this is this is something that like maybe I'm sort of like um steering more into movie maintenance territory than Springsteen territory here, but but I mean we were very aware of particularly the backlash to Star Wars The Last Jedi, which which divided people so strongly. But you look at some of the YouTube videos about it and and they're so vitriolic. And you're kind of sitting there being like, why why do you care so much? I mean, people make whole Twitter accounts devoted to savaging The Last Jedi. And I'm like, you, you do realize that the Star Wars films that you grew up with and you love are still there. They're not going anywhere. But, like, if you get to a point where you expect a franchise to cater specifically to your very particular needs, I mean, you're never going to be surprised. You're never going to get anything new or exciting or interesting if you're completely closed off to anything outside of exactly what you want. And, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I just think with with things like that, I mean, I do believe that with movie maintenance, we always approached almost – we always approached most of what we did from a place of love. I really do believe that. But but at the same time, like, you get tired of having to be negative, and, and you also get tired of hearing negativity as well. So, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, there's enough negativity going on at the moment, you know? I absolutely do. And, and also, um, when – you know, I do a Doctor Who podcast, and so we go through when it's new. We go through a weekly episode where you know we talk about the new episodes, and then during the off season we go back to classic Who, both the after Russell T Davies took over, and then the true classic and we'll talk about it and we may do a nitpick here like we're saying you know if they had done this here i think it would have been it the story would have worked better but um and and i'm sure that's what a lot of times you guys do too but it is sometimes um and i get that it's out of love but i could see how you're like okay you know do i really want to spend another hour talking about you know, how I would have done Avengers Infinity War. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. Versus and I mean, going out and making my own movie. Exactly, and that's that's I think what has always kind of been the other discomfort with movie maintenance is that like, you know, I mean, it's on a certain level a lot of the show has been fan fiction, but or or kind of you know in a roundabout way. I mean, it's not like we're writing full scripts; we're just kind of pitching. This is what I would do with the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise or the Alien franchise or whatever. And then you know, occasionally we have fun and do like a really subversive, twisted Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey pitch. But at a certain point, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm now. <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Um, I'm now predominantly known for, for playing in other people's playgrounds. If that makes sense. Yes. And I've kind of, and that's actually why we launched the spin-off Movie Maintenance Presents, the audio drama podcast, because it kind of was like, well, we want to, we want to kind of put our money where our mouth is a bit, you know, and sort of show, show what we're capable of as writers when we're not playing with somebody else's territory, like actually telling our own stories, bringing our own sensibilities to the board, all of that kind of thing. Um, because, I mean, a lot of people come out and they say, you know, oh, it's very easy to criticize, but it's not so easy to make stuff yourself. And, I mean, I'm – I sort of, I guess, as somebody who's got a foot in both camps there, I I do think, you know, it's – I think that's a fundamentally flawed argument where somebody's like, you know, I mean, as I'm a Doctor Who fan myself, and you see, like, particularly the big uh, – you know, there's, there's there are certain people for whom anything Stephen Moffat does cannot just – on a matter of principle cannot be good. And – and like I'm not, I don't really fall into that camp, but but you see a lot of people sort of you know talking to I guess the Moffat bashers and being like oh well make something yourself then before you criticize it and it's like well no they they actually don't have to like I mean if if the stipulation for having an opinion on something is that you have to have made something yourself that's not really how being a fan works and it's not really how opinions work like you can be a consumer and have an opinion on something without having to understand how it works from the inside. But that said, like, I mean, it's a bit different when your podcast, I mean, you build yourselves as writers. You say, you know, we're content producers ourselves and we're going to tell the franchise heavy hitters how to do it better. That, that I think invites that criticism a lot more strongly than if I was just a reviewer, you know? I do. And I also think, Gabriel, um, and I promise we will get to Bruce Springsteen, guys, but as you're very aware, aware, you know, the joy of this podcast is it's a conversation and we, who knows what tangent we'll get into, but um, I, I listened to like Penn Gillette uh, podcast and someone would say, uh, you know, Penn, you really should have done a, a discussion of breaking down all the errors in um, Muslim religion, you know, because he is a well-known atheist. And he said, you're right. Go make that movie. That isn't the movie I want to make, but if you want to make that documentary, I'd love watching that documentary. And um, I often find the the discussion is it isn't the movie I would have made, and that's not fair. What it is is this is the movie they wanted to make. Did you enjoy it or not? Not, well, I would have done things differently. Because yeah. and and so I think um, I think that's a healthy decision you guys are making is well let's kind of go to our stories about what we we could do and let's do some audio dramas and our versions of it and then uh, versus discussing necessarily and and it's a fine line isn't it Gabriel between uh, I just was on an earlier podcast where we were talking Infinity Wars. And um, one of the my the panelists with me uh, complained about there wasn't enough time between um, Thanos and his daughter 
They didn't think they set that up a lot. And I said, well, I think they did, and you only had so much time. So, But that's a very minor tweak about how you would have done it. Um, all of us and that it, are creative – go ahead, sir. Oh, yeah, no, all I was going to say is like it needn't <clears> – <throat> like having having minor criticisms needn't damn the film. You know, I, I say this as somebody who loved The Last Jedi. Like I really yeah. did because – I like I went to Force Awakens, for example, having no idea of what to expect. I was just like, you know, I'm a, right. I'm of the generation. I very much grew up with Star Wars. Um, I was like, what was I? I would have been like seven when they were re-released in um, in ninety <clears throat> in ninety seven, I think. And um, and then the prequels kind of came out at when I was exactly the right age to not notice the the shortcomings of those films. And so, you know, I came into Force Awakens with no expectations at all, apart from the fact that I was like, yeah, it's going to be Star Wars. It's great. And I walked out feeling kind of hollow, and I was like, "Why do I? It did everything right. Why do I? Why do I feel that way?" And I was like, "Because I wasn't surprised. Because it just ticked all the boxes of what people think a Star Wars film should be." And I, retrospectively, I think they needed to make that film before they could take any risks. But then I went and I saw the Last Jedi, and I had problems with it, like you know, all the cancer bite stuff, and a lot of the stuff in the middle was kind of a bit flabby and could have been cut down or could have been sort of better conceived. But by the end of it, I walked out being like, "That film surprised me." That film gave me stuff to think about, and that film challenged me in a way that I didn't expect. Like, is it what I would have done with the franchise? No, but I'm not handling the franchise. So at a certain point, it's like, I'm not saying you have to accept wholesale what somebody else does, particularly with a story or a series that you love. But at the same time, I think I think coming at anything from an approach of, I don't care what they've done, all I care about is what I wanted, and that's what I insist on, and you have to meet my demands, I think that's fundamentally wrong-headed. Um, thank you. That was an enjoyable discussion. Um, no worries. Gabriel, I always like to start, before we get specific, Bruce-specific, talk about growing up. What kind of music did you listen to? Was your family very musical? Did they have, you know, what did your parents listen to? And then as you go through, talk to me about high school, what you were listening to, and what kind of music. Well, it's it's funny. Like, I wasn't a, I wasn't a super, I guess, music-conscious teenager. Like, I was a, you know, I was a obsessive obsessive film nerd and a very very heavy reader and consequently not a popular kid in high school but um but so when i was growing up like my, my dad is austrian and you know he would always listen to like a lot of traditional austrian music which i i couldn't stand and mum would always listen mum's a kiwi and she would listen to a lot of traditional new zealand music which i also couldn't stand and so i just never like i never had like a ton of consciousness about music and then i sort of like i guess i kind of had this this weird evolution where i think when i was like 13 i bought my first album which was simple plan and i was like simple plan understands me i mean it's, it was awful like you know there even like if i'm falling down nostalgia hole and i put it on i get through like 10 seconds of a song and i'm like no no this is awful i can't do this and then i guess when i was like about 15 or so i sort of i sort of stumbled into green day and I think it was American Idiot that I listened to, and it was the whole rock opera thing, and the whole like I never I never realized that you could do that with music, like sort of have an album that tells a story. And speaking as somebody who was always in love and obsessed with stories, I kind of got really drawn into that. And so I guess like around this time, I sort of became aware of Bruce Springsteen because you know I was reading interviews with Green Day and stuff, and they were talking about how they really always wanted the songs in their albums albums to speak to each other the same way the songs on Born to Run did. And so, you know, I, I always had a very eclectic taste in music. Like, it was the kind of thing where if I heard a song that I liked, I would download it. But but there were very, very few artists who I sort of followed and, you know, listened to the new albums of and listened to the back catalogs of. And, like, even, you know, artists like Green Day and David Bowie, who I was into at the time, they weren't, they weren't artists who, like, 
for whom I obsessively listened to the whole back catalog. I listened to like maybe the best of CDs and then the new stuff that came out. And then it was kind of when I was in my second last year of high school, I read this book called The Book of Joe by Jonathan Tropper. And to this day, it's my favorite book of all time. And it, it spoke to me a lot because I grew up in a small country town and I, I was always like writing a lot growing up and I always kind of resented my town growing up. And the book is basically about a a guy who grows up in a small country town, hates a small country town. When he's a teenager, something terrible happens to him that I won't spoil in case anyone wants to read the book. And he runs away to the city. And while he's away in the city, he writes a novel that savages the town, basically writing a novel, exposing the town for what it's done, exposing what happened, exposing his childhood, but like in a very biased way that blames everyone except himself for this terrible event. And then 17 years later, after he's um, left the town, his father has a stroke and he has to come home. And so it's a prodigal son story where he has to return home to the town that hates him and kind of in the process face up to all the things that have happened and face up to all the things that have shaped him. And it, it, it's really emotional. It's really rough. It's really beautiful. It's, it's a great book. But all through the novel, um, there's this motif of Bruce Springsteen songs where when he's driving into town, like he's listening to Thunder Road and, and Backstreets is a really major motif all the way through it. Like Backstreets just keeps coming up and keeps being referenced and all of this stuff. And a lot of other songs like Better Days comes in there at one point. Um, Bobby Jean and Rosalita have, have major parts as well. But, um, but yeah, it was Backstreets that kept coming up. And so finishing this book, I was sort of like, I need to hear this song because like Jonathan Chopper had written about it so beautifully so I, I looked it up and I listened to it and I was like, that's an amazing song. And so like in my final year of school, I got the Born to Run album and I kind of listened to that through. And it was just like, I mean, but I feel like Born to Run is kind of, when you're 17, Born to Run sort of captures that feeling and that experience perfectly. You know what I mean? This has been said, this is not a hot take. A lot of people have said this before, but like, but from a personal angle, like when I was 17, coming to the end of school, about to turn 18, um, going through, you know, all the, all the wild, tempestuous, passionate things you go through when you're that age, like, you know, with, with girlfriends and with friends and with all of this stuff and, you know, kind of coming, I guess, to the end of my adolescence, Born to Run just captured that so perfectly. And I listened to that album on repeat. I was obsessed with Thunder Road. I was obsessed with Jungle Land, Backstreets. Um, you know, if I'd go out to parties, like Night would be the song that I would listen to when I was going out. Like it was, it was just kind of, um, and it was just kind of, you know, the, the soundtrack, I guess, to that year of my life. And there's, there's a great line in the book of Joe where Jonathan Tropper says there's a Springsteen song for every occasion. And that was kind of the point where I started to realize that. And so Springsteen was kind of the first artist for whom I, I got the whole back catalog and I listened through the whole thing. And then, you know, started getting into the B sides and started getting into the more obscure stuff. And, um, and I guess like I'd never, I'd never kind of, found an artist who just kind of kept giving the way Bruce Springsteen did. Like, like, you know, when I was kind of a year out of, um, when I was, you know, a year out of school and I was at university and I was kind of like a little bit lost and a little bit kind of, you know, life had taken kind of not a, not a bad turn by any means, but like a turn where I was a bit confused. I wasn't really sure where I was and I wasn't surrounded by my friends anymore. And then suddenly darkness on the edge of town just became very, very fitting to where I was at the time. And then sort of as I went on, like, you know, you get a bit older and like coming out of a relationship, suddenly you've got Tunnel of Love. And all of these things, all of these, I guess, albums that like maybe I didn't quite understand when I first listened to them. Like I think um, Darkness and the Edge of Town and Tunnel of Love were two albums that when I first heard them, I was like, oh, yeah, they're all right, but they're not born to run. And then right. a few years later, when you've kind of gone through the sort of experiences that inform those albums, you kind of realize a bit more what they're talking about. And that kind of led me to have a lot of faith in Bruce Springsteen where I was like, 
with the exception of, you know, Queen of the Supermarket, most of what he talks about comes from a pretty real place, you know, and that, and, you know, even if I don't understand it, I'm kind of like, maybe I don't have to, maybe the time will come when I do understand it. And so, so yeah, I guess sort of Bruce Springsteen was the first and, and really the only artist that I really was passionate about to that extent where like I've listened through the whole thing. I've read multiple biographies. Of course I've read born to run. Um, and then getting to the point of writing a play about him as well. Um, so, so yeah, like I've never, you know, I've, I've always, and I've still kind of continued to this day with that very eclectic music taste. Like I'm not the kind of person who, if I hear a song on the radio, I really like, and I'll Shazam it. I'm not the kind of person who will listen to that song and then straight away go and listen to everything else by that artist. Like I just kind of put it to my library and I just listen to the eclectic songs I have and I like, and you know, my, my general music taste is very kind of, I love classic rock. I love sort of, I love kind of folk and bluegrass type music. Um, but then I have music I like that's a lot more modern and a lot more Indian, a lot more punk rock and things like that too. Yes. But Bruce Springsteen's kind of been the consistent through line through my music taste. All right. And what's the name of this novel again? Uh, the Book of Joe by Jonathan Tropper. So okay. if, if you're familiar with a TV show called Banshee, um, okay. it's, it's, he's the same. So he was the showrunner on Banshee. Um, but he's, and Banshee's crazy. It's like this wild, action packed, sort of, um, violence, uh, crazy TV show. But the Book of Joe is completely different. And a lot of his novels are completely different. They're a lot more introspective and emotional and relatable. But I would say, the book of Joe for me personally is the best of his books. Like a lot of his books can be a little bit samey. It's like, okay, here's another, another guy in his thirties kind of going through a crisis and having to face up to his past and all of that stuff. But, but the book of Joe, it's by no means a perfect book. Like it's, it's a little bit messy plot wise and, and some of the writings a bit over the top, but, but it's one of those books where just the, the emotion and the pathos and the, the fact that it's so genuine just always brings it home for me. Okay. So if you're a Springsteen fan, but also if you're just a fan of, you know, good reads, I recommend it wholeheartedly. All right. I will definitely include the link uh, in the show notes. I'm, I'm pulling it up on Amazon right now. So uh, very interesting. Um, so you've kind of Bruce um, through this novel and then through the music spoke to you. Um, I don't know if you've known, but, um, currently, the podcast is going through um, Bruce's albums with a different uh, fan helping me, and we've, we're ranking um, each song on every album from least favorite to most favorite, kind of one at a time. And um, someone said about Tunnel of Love, you need to have your heart broken a couple of times before you truly appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So I think that's interesting that, as you said, as you, his music grows with you and kind of gives you a different perspective. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting. Um, so what I want to know, as I was looking at your um, the podcast, you know, there is an episode where you pitch your Springsteen biography. So. Um, I take it that's before you actually did the radio play, correct? Yeah, it is. It was it was actually released only a month or so before the radio play, but it was recorded about a year beforehand. Okay. And I actually asked them not to release that episode because I did it, and I kind of walked out of it being like, "Oh man, that's that's self indulgent. That's like I'm this is this is a you know this is a movie fan podcast, and I've basically just 
rambled about Bruce Springsteen for 40 minutes with a couple of friends. And it's, it's basically just me talking with occasional interjections from the other guys. And, and like, I don't know, I just think also to me, the, the Springsteen pitch, which became the radio play came from, just came from a very, a very raw place, I think in, in some ways. And I was a little bit uncomfortable, I guess, about airing that on movie maintenance, but then, cause I mean, the rate before the radio play was a radio play, it was a stage play. And so we decided to release that episode a couple of weeks before the stage play went on to kind of help with publicity. And, and it did people, people really, really liked that episode. So it's, it's one of those cases of, you know, you, you put something out there or you put something together that you don't know how it's going to be received. And then it really hits a chord with people. And I found something very similar with the Springsteen radio play and the stage play in that I had absolutely no idea how it was going to be received. But in the end, you know, we sold out the season. We got rave reviews. The radio play hit like number three on the performing arts charts on iTunes. Um, so, so that was mental. So, so yeah, I guess sometimes it's like the, the risk does pay off. So let's, let's kind of go and we'll kind of go through this step by step if it's okay with you, Gabriel. Sure. So, um, You've you've written a couple of books. You've done. Have you done other plays? Yeah, yeah. I've most of my writing work is in the territory of theatre. Okay. Um. So I guess the precedent for Springsteen was a couple of years ago. I wrote a play about the Beatles. Um. Who are another? You know, I, I'm a big fan of the Beatles. I really like them and everything. And I um, I've always like been very fascinated by their story. You know, I've read a couple of books on them and everything, and not to the same extent as Bruce Springsteen, but. But just the, the Beatles fascinate me in terms of, you know, having these four completely disparate personalities with completely disparate views on music and ideas of what they want to make. And it's not like, you know, um, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, where, like, the bands complement and bolster his work, but the, the fundamental core of it will always come from him. With the Beatles, it was like they were all bringing something to the table, and they all went on to successful solo careers, but just never quite in the same heights as they had when they were together. And so to me, just the idea of these four people who on some level kind of need each other, but on some level kind of hate each other coming together for 10 years and just creating magic. And, you know, nobody's ever replicated what they achieved in that time and then going off and disappearing. Like there's just something so fascinating and tragic and amazing about it. So I wrote this play um, basically about the four of them getting together in a hotel room uh, one night, 1990, uh, 1966 and kind of confronting their music and their legacy and everything. And they get drunk and secrets come out and they sort of rip into each other. And it was kind of like, it, it's a, it's a far more comedic play than Springsteen, but it also kind of is about something a bit more serious at its core, but it was kind of just a way to sort of put those personalities in a room and kind of delve into the whys and the hows of what brought them together and what drove them apart. If that makes sense. It does. <laughs> so, so, you know, you've, after this happened, did you just in the back of your mind going, I, I want to tell a Bruce story. Well, it had kind of been in my head for a, a long time. Like, like the Beatles and Bruce were two two stories I kind of wanted to tell about musicians for quite a few years. Um, I think I first had the idea of writing a Bruce play in like 2010. I think it was when I read the first the first Springsteen biography I read, and I read it and I kind of you know at the time I didn't really know anything about the Mike Appel lawsuit and all of that stuff. And I read that and I was like, man, that'd make a really good movie or a really good play or something. And at the time, I just started writing for youth theatres, and so I kind of, like, started thinking at the time how would I tackle this on stage, but I, I never wrote it. Like, I don't, I don't think I quite had the understanding yet or the take yet, and at the same time, I was sort of, like, playing with this Beatles idea that I also never wrote, and then it was actually, I guess, the, the impetus was after the Beatles play, one of the nights after the performance of it, 
we're at the pub afterwards, we're having a drink, and I was talking to some friends of one of the cast members who come for a drink with us afterwards. And I was look, I was I was a little bit inebriated, and I sort of just um, went on this long gushing rant about why I believe Bruce Springsteen is the greatest recording artist of all time. And I was I was like carrying on about, it, I was banging on about it. And then one of them was just like, so why did you write a play about the Beatles and not Bruce Springsteen? And I'm like, oh, that's a that's an incredibly good question. Um, so I kind of went away and that was, um, I, I don't know if you're, um, shortly after I went to America, um, because of an award that I won. And so I spent a bit of time in New York and at the time it was, it was just after that Beatles play went on and I was kind of like turning over in my head how to tackle this Springsteen idea. And so my initial take on the play was just to write similar to the Beatles play, like a one room, one scene drama. And so if you've heard the radio play, it's the second scene of the radio play, the one about the born to run, the lead up to born to run where they're in the hotel room and there's a fictional girlfriend, Wendy and Mike comes in and everything. It was basically that scene, but like an hour long. And so I kind of like wrote that from start to finish and I kind of got to the end of it. And I was like, this, this is very, very similar to like a lot of other plays that I've written. Like I'm, I love putting people who are at some kind of conflict in a room together and like waiting for pressure cooker to kind of boil up and just sort of explode. And that was sort of what the Beatles play was too. And, and like when I wrote that, I was kind of like, it's, it's okay, but it's just, it's just something I've done a million times before. And I've got a lot more to say about Bruce Springsteen than just this one time because of what I was saying earlier about the way his music grows and develops with you. I was a lot more fascinated about the, his whole life and his whole development. And I was like, how, but how do I tackle that in the play? And so it was kind of like, because normally if I have an idea, I sort of develop it for a couple of weeks and then I sit down and I write it in like a week or so. And then I leave it for a while. Then I come back to it and I do any edits and rewrites and stuff. But the, the process of spring scene was much, much longer. So I left that sitting for a while Then I kind of left it for, you know, a few months and I sort of came back to it. Then I kind of wrote like a much longer, more rambly draft and then did a read through with some actors and that didn't work. And then I tightened the whole thing down and then it was kind of after I read Born to Run, his autobiography, which initially I wasn't going to read because I was sort of thinking, you know, I've written this play or at least the first draft of this play. And what if I read the book and there's stuff in the book that that directly contradicts things I've suggested in the play? And so I was a bit worried about it. But of course, the day the book came out, I had to read it. Like I had yeah, no choice. Exactly. And, and I read it. And the thing that surprised me the most was like, how the stuff that I'd, I'd guessed at or the stuff that like I'd made up for the sake of dramatizing the play actually lined up quite well with what Bruce said he was going through in the book. And not further more than that, there was one aspect of the book that actually brought the play together for me because at the time, like I had the play in a similar structure to how it exists now. It was the six scenes, um, the six different moments, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite flowing. Like the first half of it, I was like, yeah, this is good, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite coming together in the way – like, I, I don't think I quite knew what the theme of it was yet or what the central idea of it was yet. And at the time, that the fourth scene of the play, which is the one the, – the pre-Nebraska scene where Bruce and Steve are in the studio and they're talking about Nebraska and Steve tells him to, to sort of, you know, just record it without the bands, that was kind of where the scene ended originally – and then it kind of went straight to the next scene where Bruce is with Patty and he's kind of probably at his lowest point and it's sort of pre-tunnel of love. And, and the progression didn't quite feel natural to me. But then I read the book and in the book, Bruce talks about this sort of, I guess you'd call it like a long dark night of the soul that him and Steve had uh, when Steve told him he was leaving the band. 
And they sort of, he was talking about how they had this night together in this room where they were just sitting there and they hashed everything out and it was really rough and, you know, he's not going to go into what the conversation was, but it got to the end where Steve was like, I need to go and take my shot at the title. And Bruce was like, I completely get that. You have to go. And so the moment I read that, I was like, that's my scene. Yeah. And all I had to do was rewrite the end of the scene as it stood. So, I mean, you know, I took two different things, like the Nebraska recording and that meeting, and I made them one scene for the sake of streamlining for drama. But the moment that came together, I was like, that's it. Because the play is about learning to appreciate the people in your life. It's about learning that your ambition isn't everything and that it's far more important that you have people around you who love you and support you, but also that you love and support them in turn. And that scene, the way it sits in the play now, is the first moment where Bruce realizes that other people don't see things the same way as him. Like his, or my Bruce anyway, my fictional Bruce, is that it's a moment in the play where he realizes that the way he's been so hell-bent on achieving his dreams all this time, other people don't necessarily prioritize that, and it's kind of made them better people. And it's the moment where Steve is like, no, no, record without the band, because that's the way it's going to be better. And Bruce is like, holy crap, Steve's actually putting the music first. He's putting something else first. And then he kind of like doesn't quite want to let go of him. So Bruce is like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll do this other album and it'll be like big and electric and you'll be tearing up the guitar and we'll be doing this. And then Steve tells him, no, I'm leaving. And it's kind of the first moment where Bruce realizes that there's something he can't control. Because up until that point, the play has been Bruce controlling everything and steamrolling over anyone who gets in his way. You know, he steamrolls over Mike. He cuts Steve down to size in the second scene. He does all of that. And it's been the first moment where Bruce realizes there's something that he just can't, he has no control over. Like Steve's leaving whether he wants him to or not. And at the end of that realization, the only thing Bruce can say to Steve is, I couldn't have done it without you. Because it's the first one where Bruce actually has to confront the fact that he he needs these people in his life and he always has, they've always been there for him and he hasn't appreciated them. And then that felt like a very natural lead into the next scene with Patty, which is the first scene where Bruce actually shuts up and listens to somebody else when Patty has that speech about the treehouse and all of that. And that kind of felt the moment that came into place, I was like, I've got my play. Like there's some tightening and there's some tweaking, but I know what the story is about. And every scene now feels to me like it's working to achieve that overall goal. You know, I, I love the play and I actually would have guessed you had read the autobiography before you wrote the play. Um, that's how well it fits in. Um, so I find it um, kind of interesting that you had already, you know, a lot of it was already there. Um, I found really interesting in the autobiography that, you know, Bruce had said that looking back, there was a way they could have, there was room for all. There was, he could have kept the band together and they could have given him room to all do individual projects. Uh, but there was just a lot of ego and a lot of, you know, water under the bridge. And I, I have a dream that I want to get a couple of fans who were, you know, started being major fans like in the 70s um, and talk to them about that dark period, you know, that when he fired the E Street Band, when, you know, he moved to California, he did Lucky Town and, and – uh, human touch, and, and then the the feeling they got when they came back for the greatest hits and then went away again. Um, you know, this is all happening kind of off screen or off stage from my perspective because I didn't become obsessed till The Rising. I mean, I was a fan, but The Rising is what made me this Springsteen obsessive. And 
I, so I'd like to hear their perspective of, you know, this dark time for them as a fan. Um, but I, um, you know, in the play at first, I, I'm not sure I like Little Steven. Um, and, but I grew to like him a lot during that final scene. And um, I think your voice actor, as you said, sounds just like Bruce. Um, and and there is this the loneliness that comes through the burden of wanting to be great, you know. At the same time, not wanting to be overly egotistical, but at the same time, and Bruce talks a lot about that, right? The the yin and the yang of you have to be incredibly confident and you have to be incredibly humble. So yeah, I think you do a good job of showing that in the play. Thank you. And I, I think like, yeah, it, it's the credit has to go to Chris Farrell, who was my Bruce Springsteen. Like when I, when I came into doing the stage play, I, I'd known Chris, I'd worked with him on other roles before. And Chris, Chris is, uh, if he, he'll probably be listening to this and, you know, um, to Chris, like there's, there's nothing here that isn't complimentary. Chris is an extremely, extremely intense actor and he's an intense person. He's very, and that's what, that's why I think him and I sort of relate to each other on a lot of levels, because I think we have, we have similar ambitions and we have similar ways of viewing the world and viewing what you have to do to achieve success and all of that stuff. And when I kind of came into doing this, I was like the only person I know who I think can capture Bruce Springsteen is Chris Farrell, because Chris is, Chris is one of those people who I see as extremely intense and extremely driven and takes his work very seriously. But I've never looked at, and I know actors who do that as well. I know a lot of very serious actors who are driven to the extent Chris is, but Chris is one of the few who I know who I don't believe comes from a place of ego. Like, I don't think he's sitting there being like, I'm the best. I'm amazing. All of that. Like, I think there's a humbleness to Chris as well because he's always just wanting to work harder and he's always just wanting to be better. And, you know, he got to the end of the season when we did the radio play and he was like, oh, you know, like, I wish we'd had like, I wish we'd had six more months of development on this play. And I was like, I, I feel, I mean, yeah, more time would have been great. But I also feel like, you know, you did an incredible job with the time you had. I mean, like, I think, you know, Chris went away and he listened to the audiobook all the way through several times. And he like watched so many interviews and he, he went absolutely crazy with his research. I mean, he's a method actor. And I mean, the decision to cast him also he kind of like if you see photos of him online he kind of looks like bruce springsteen like it sort of paid off in a big way to the point where like when i listened to the radio play the first cut of the radio play i think i never really picked like i'd always known that like his impression of bruce was really good but in the radio play version you've only got his voice you don't you're not looking at chris and hearing what's coming out of his mouth you're just hearing the words and there were moments where i was like god he sounds like bruce he does like that that's eerie. And the, the way that you notice it, especially in the radio play, the way that he, he changes his voice all the way through, like early on, he sounds a lot like Bruce does back in the, you know, the, um, East Street Shuffle and the, um, the Born to Run days. And then he sort of like tweaks it. And then by the end of it, when he's doing that final monologue, he sounds eerily similar to any interview you listen to with Bruce today or like even the audiobook. And I think that comes from Chris's like very close listening to the audiobook to get all the cadences and all the, the ticks and everything right. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think another point that um, reading the book helped me to understand at least his perspective, not – I still don't understand necessarily why Bruce chooses it this way, but 
you know, I'd always wonder, like, Clarence had a career by himself, you know, uh, little Steven had a career by himself. Um, I bought Gary Talent's, um, you know, uh, Break Time uh, CD and loved it. I, you know, Neil's, I just went to an acoustical show here in Dallas where he played and other band member, other artists will say, and now I'm going to have Niels do one, you know, and Bruce doesn't. I mean, he sings lead. He is leading it. It is definitely Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. And what I think talks about the the greatness of his leadership and I guess management style is all of them are okay serving that the the more than the sum of the parts of Bruce Spring and the E Street Band. He talked about that in the Rock and Hall Rock and Roll Hall of Fame acceptance when the band got inducted, is that he could not have told his story without the band. And together they are more than the just they are separately. Um, well, that's something I find so fascinating is because, I mean, there are, there are a lot of bands out there where, you know, you've got your lead singer and your lead, the person who writes most of the songs and everything, but they're, they're still, a, like, I, I just think back to just because we're talking about them before, but like you look at, I mean, it's not, it's not a comparable thing with Green Day, uh, with Bruce Springsteen, but you look at Green Day and it's like, okay, so Billy Joe Armstrong sings the songs and writes the songs, but it's not Billy Joe Armstrong and Green Day. It's Green Day. They're a unit. And right. when Billy Joe Armstrong does solo stuff, it's Billy Joe Armstrong. And it, it is a different thing. Whereas like, I mean, yeah, there's definitely a different energy when Bruce does stuff without the E Street Band. I mean, absolutely. But it still feels like that same fundamental core voice telling you, like, I mean, Tunnel of Love and Lucky Town don't feel any less, or, and I mean, Ghost of Tom Joad and Nebraska and Devils and Dust, they don't feel any less Bruce Springsteen albums than like Darkness or Port to Run. They're just different Bruce Springsteen albums. Yes. Um, um, well and something I found really fascinating with, and I mean, it's not even like the E Street Band are completely one sound fits all, you know? I mean, like the, the highly produced style, the highly produced operatic style of Born to Run is very different to like the loose wooliness of, um, Wild the Innocent the E Street Shuffle or the kind of more crazy partying vibe of the river, you know? So it's, it's, but it is interesting to me because it's that kind of weird disconnect where it's like, yeah, it's, it's more than just a backup band. But at the same time, they are, like Bruce has said on several occasions, they are hired by him to provide backup because they understand him, they work with him. But but it, it is Bruce Springsteen. He is the star. And I find that really fascinating because I think um I think where they are, I mean, obviously Steve's got, you know, Soulfire and stuff, and they've all they've all got careers, but none of them have careers on the same level as Bruce Springsteen. I mean, very few people do. That's that's right. not in any like damning or an indictment or anything. Like, I mean it's it's saying you're not up they're saying you don't have the same career as Elvis, you know? But like yeah. it it's it is fascinating to me because from what I what I gauge from the book and what I've gauged from other books and interviews is that now they're very accepting of that. And I think that probably is uh, I say at twenty six, that's probably something that comes with age and experience and um and sort of renewed insight and new perspective. But it feels to me like it wasn't always the case that the band was completely okay with the way it worked. Particularly like, you know, Steve obviously was his own artist and had his own stuff he wanted to do. Um, they met as equals and then that changed. Um, you know, a lot of them, they all, they all had their own stuff they wanted to do. So I feel like there was, and that's something I tried to kind of tap into in the play with Steve was I feel like there was 
that early, a lot of those early conflicts that sort of eventually gave way. And in, in one of the very first drafts of the play, like I had a scene at the end, at the very end with Bruce and Steve together again. But because I kind of want to keep the play tight, I didn't want to have lots of like small scenes. I want to have like six longer scenes. I sort of included that in the 9-11 reaction stuff. And that scene just, it didn't work. Like it was like Bruce, Patty and Steve talking and it just didn't work. It felt clunky. It felt tacked on and it felt like it was serving too many masters at once. Like it felt like it was kind of trying to resolve these relationships as I'd established them in the play while trying to address the rising and the return and all of that. And so, so in the end that went in favor of the monologue we got at the end. And I, I felt like I'd had to leave the Bruce and Steve relationship where it was and assume that anybody who is listening to this probably knows their stuff and knows that the friendship now is as strong as it's ever been. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's pretty interesting as you're talking about it, that, um, you know, they're, you know, I, I think of Elvis and Elvis did not have, he had, you know, the Memphis mafia around him, but not, a true friend that could tell him, you know, Elvis, you're, you're destroying yourself. You need to do better, you know? And, and it does feel like to a certain degree, um, Steven and the rest of the band, especially Steven have been that to him that, you know, he may be angry about it because none of us likes, constructive feedback no matter how much we say we want it uh you know at first you're like oh wait a minute and then you calm down and go oh wow maybe that is a good point but it 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 feels like steven has been a very good friend to him and um and i'm sure in his own way bruce a very good friend to him well you see i mean you can just see in the autobiography like the way he the way he writes about Clarence, the way he writes about Steve, like, I mean, there, there is so much obvious love and brotherhood there, you know, yes. and, and that I find really interesting. I mean, it's, I think Bruce Springsteen is such a fascinating example, you know, where he's talking about all, you know, the rock gods who, you know, fell into drugs and alcohol and died young and that glamorous thing. And Springsteen's like, I like my gods to be old, but alive. And the fact that, you know, he didn't, Bruce never fell into that stuff. He never fell into the hard partying Rolling Stones scene. He never was into drugs. He never fell into like the, you know, the Memphis Mafia stuff with Elvis. Like, I think, I think what I so, I mean, there are so many things I admire about Bruce Springsteen, but one of the things I admire the most is that it was his vision. He did things the way he wanted to do it. And he had that strength of personality for better or worse, where he never fell into the traps or the pitfalls, he just stuck to his guns and he saw it through. And that integrity, because at the end of the day, it was all the integrity about his work. That integrity kind of saw him through and meant that he did have that appreciation for his friends. And he did have that. He wasn't like lured away by any sort of, you know, shiny things, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, I've talked about this before with Peter Chianka, the guy who does blogness on the edge of town. And, He's been on the show, and we talked about that, you know, for somehow Bruce's um, stayed away from scandal. Um, I guess, you know, his his first marriage broke up, but he's very clear in his autobiography that was all him. You yeah, know, absolutely. That, I mean, he makes that very clear that, you know, he wasn't ready to be married. He wasn't honest with uh, Julie, and he, you know, he takes the total – um, blame for that. But, um, you know, and Peter and I talked about, 
um, we both would be crushed if we had found out that there was a scandal with him. Yeah, because absolutely. he seems so just a flawed man, but a honest man. Um, and you admire him. Like, I mean, that's that's kind of part of it. Like, yeah. you have this because, and I think part of it stands to the fact that like there's this there's this fundamental honesty to his work and to his writing that means that you. I think the reason it's funny. I was talking to somebody the other day, like um, somebody I ran into, and I was wearing I was wearing my Born to Run shirt, and he was like, "Oh yeah, cool shirt, man." And we were chatting. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm a pretty big Bruce Springsteen fan, all of that thing. And he was just like, I don't think there are any casual Bruce Springsteen fans. <laughs> and I sort of was like, you know what? Yeah, because I say that as somebody who's like not not like a hardcore music obsessive by any means, but I'm a hardcore Bruce Springsteen obsessive. And I think part of that is the affinity and the admiration that you feel for the man himself, you know? Because you you read about him and you read his music and he says things in his songs that are so beautiful and transcendent and relatable and speak to you on such a deep level and then you read the autobiography and it goes even further than that and you feel such a connection to him such an admiration to what he's made out of his his pain and his ideas and everything that's special and exciting and individual about himself and i completely agree with you i mean if something if anything untoward came out at any point like that would be that would be devastating for me like absolutely devastating yeah um you know uh couple of questions gabriel and um what are your thoughts on broadway um you know because a couple of fans have felt like he's betrayed um his you know base fan base because by doing this with such such expensive seats and stuff any thoughts on that um look i think it would be a very different story if i was in america um but because I'm kind of at a point where, um, cause I live in Australia, obviously, and I, I, I'm a working writer. I am not rich. Um, I don't sort of have the, like, like going to see Broadway was never an option for me, you know? So I've been aware of like the, you know, all the controversies around it with the ticket prices and the, the verified fan thing or whatever it is, but I haven't been super aware of it. Um, I, I do think it's particularly as somebody who is a bit of a man of the people, um, I do think having such sky high ticket prices isn't isn't great. But I mean, I mean, on the other hand, it's like Broadway. It's it's tough. I mean, I don't, I don't know all the things that go into putting on a Broadway show, and obviously, like you know, the tickets have sold, so it's not yeah. like it's damaged him. But yeah, but like I think I think Broadway is expensive. But also, I mean, Bruce has said himself what you get with Springsteen on Broadway is an experience that you don't get anywhere else because like, it's more than just a, have you seen it? I was, I was lucky What's enough. I, um, a, um, a fan of the podcast reached out to me when I was saying that, you know, I, uh, some, someone's complaining and I'm like, look, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to have the chance to go, but I don't resent anyone for going. And, you know, if someone is lucky enough to get tickets for two or three nights, good for it. I mean, we don't hold against people that get in the pit lottery uh, multiple shows because they want to be at the stage. You don't say, nope, you're on your elbows on the stage this show. Now then you should back off and give someone else a chance. Uh, I just, yeah, think, you know, it, it, it that's just not the nature of the beast. And so a guy reached out and said, um, you know, what's your price range? And I'm like, oh, I just can't afford a lot. And um, and so he reached out and he says, I have a ticket. It's it's in the middle range. It was four hundred dollars. 
And he said, and it's coming up, and it was um, like six or eight weeks from when it was now. And um, so I went to my wife, and I said, this is really asking a lot. I mean, this is, this is, I, I am being greedy. I am being selfish. And, um, you know, we talked about it and we figured out how I could go. And so I was able to go. I flew into New York, um, you know, saw the show, spent the night in a little pod hotel, got back up the next morning and flew home. And it was amazing. I, I went in with high expectations and left with them totally exceeded. Um, it's interesting, John, who's been on the podcast with me, actually says, he says, I tell people I've seen Bruce 20 times in concert and once on Broadway because it's totally different. You know, it, and so. It, That's what fascinates me about it. Yeah. Like, I'd, I'd yeah. love to see it, but. And, and I, I hope, I, I am hoping that HBO you know, because they have a pretty good relationship, we'll film it for HBO special, and then it'll be available on Blu-ray. Um, sure. It, it's well. pretty great. Um, so um, the other controversial thing I'll ask you is um, we just – we're having a discussion about which um, which decade do you prefer. Do you prefer 70s Bruce, 80s Bruce, 90s Bruce, you know, 2000 Bruce, and – and a guy very said, I, I love all eras. He said, except in the 80s when we lost him to, um, you know, to everyone. He says, and now then, um, he says, like, I miss the smaller shows. And I did want to argue with the guy, but I wanted to go, no, I, you know, I want, I want my little singer-songwriter or my band that I love, I want them to get massive popularity. That's okay with me if I now have trouble getting a ticket because I, I want as many people to hear that magic, that music, as possible. Well, we um, it's funny because we, we did an episode of Movie Maintenance recently. It was, it was actually one of our more popular episodes on toxic fandoms. Yeah. And basically, I don't know if you're aware of this, but is it the whole thing where um, I don't know if you if you watch or have seen Rick and Morty, um, where basically there's a, there was a joke in Rick and Morty about um about McDonald's Szechuan sauce, like a sauce from uh from do, do you know about this? No, uh, no, tell me. So basically, there was a joke in that show because that show's got a huge cult following, and I mean. I get it. So it's a very, very clever TV show, but there was a joke in there where the main character is motivated by getting the 1996 Mulan Szechuan sauce from the movie Mulan that McDonald's had as a promotional thing. And then basically McDonald's, it was a huge thing, became a big internet meme because of course it did. And McDonald's um, basically said, oh, for one day only, we're making the Szechuan sauce available. And so huge mobs of Rick and Morty fans turned up. There are videos online of them like basically trashing and vandalizing McDonald's because McDonald's ran out of Szechuan sauce, um, being horrible to the staff, jumping on the counters, reenacting scenes from the show, getting in the way of everybody. And it, like, it's, it's kind of headache inducing because you're like, this is why people hate you. This is why people hate hardcore fans because like, you're not, you're, and I think the thing we settled on with the podcast, with the episode was like, it's, it's, it's not only like good to enjoy something, it's great to enjoy something. It's great to be passionate about something, but never ever let your passion impinge on somebody else, you know? Yeah. And, and something that came up in the course of that episode was the idea of, you know, people who are fans of little indie bands and the bands hit it big and they're like, Oh, they sold out. They sold out. And it's like, well, did they though? Like, because so, so basically because you like 
sort of individually, you like having a thing for this band and then you've seen them go on to something huge and now they're everyone's. And because you don't feel like they're yours anymore, you resent them for it when they've kind of reached the success they were probably looking for all along. Um, and that, that to me is like, I mean, oh, what, there was, a, there was an example of something, I can't even think of the top of my head now, of something recently that like went, went really big that like I was a fan of. Like, I think it might have actually been Jonathan Tropper with Banshee, like, you know, because I was a fan of his novels and Book of Joe, and that was something right. very special to me. And then Banshee came out and became this huge hit TV show that everyone loved and, you know, that it was like, a, at least in cult circles. And I wasn't sitting there being like, oh, no, now Jonathan Tropper's really famous and that's terrible. I was like, good for him. Like, great for him. And also it just means that we get more of him, you know? Um, so I guess, like, it's it's a hard one for me to answer because, like, it, like what you were saying before about like Bruce's dark, you know, when he was sort of disappeared in the nineties and everything like the wilderness years, the going Cali years and everything. I, that's all retrospective for me because that all is stuff I discovered after I became a Bruce Springsteen fan. So to me, like that's all part of the mythos, but it's not something I had to live through. Like I didn't have to live through something that was very personal to me suddenly being on a worldwide scale. Um, I didn't have to live through him vanishing for the nineties. Like, basically, I've been lucky enough in that I probably became a Bruce Springsteen fan in a hardcore way in 2009. And since then, we've gotten pretty consistent content, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. Not, not, I mean, we also got High Hopes, which I would have been happier not having. But then, you know, I mean, we also got Wrecking Ball, which would be in my top five favorite Bruce Springsteen albums. So, yes. so like, yeah, I've got no strong feelings on that one way or another. To me, it's just all part of a fascinating career in that, you know, he had the, the small bar part. He had the, the kind of, you know, cult following part. He had the worldwide superstar part. And then, if anything, it's like, how do you not admire him for, like, for hitting the biggest heights a rock star can hit and then releasing Tunnel of Love? Like, how does, how is there any narrative of Bruce Springsteen having sold out when he had this world conquering album and then released something completely different? Like, I mean, there's no doubt that he could have released another ball in the USA if he wanted to, but he yeah, didn't want to. He well, just, he stuck to his guns. Yeah. I mean, look at that, you know, the river first commercial success, really hungry heart went with Nebraska. Um, you know, he's, he's following his muse and, and I think absolutely. I, I think in a lot of ways it was a calculation on his part to become less quote unquote Bruce Springsteen that yeah. he didn't want to lose himself. And so that's good. And, you know, um, yeah, I definitely agree. You know, Wrecking Ball, one of my favorite albums, there's well, two or three cool. songs on high hopes that I love. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I will say about high hopes just quickly is that, there's a lot of songs in High Hopes that I didn't think anything of when I heard them. But then when I heard them live, I was like, oh, like yes. The Wall? Like The Wall was on song. I was like, yeah, whatever. And then I heard a live version of it where he tells the story behind it and then he launches into it. And I was like, that is a beautiful song. Yeah. That is hauntingly beautiful. And I mean, like, you know, I, I when I saw that High Hopes was going to have the Tom Morello, because like when I, when I saw that version of Ghost of Tom Joe, when I saw my first Bruce Springsteen concert on the Wrecking Ball tour, I was like, whoa, like, what, what did I just see? Like, because it was so different to anything I'd seen from him before. But the rawness and the craziness and just the, the sheer overpowering nature of that song live, I think is lost in the recording on High Hopes. Yeah. Um, High Hopes, and again, like, I'm not a, I'm not a crazy music aficionado. I don't, I don't know much about, like, about producing or rendering or any of that stuff. But like high hopes feels very polished and overproduced to me coming off a wrecking ball. That just feels so yeah. wrecking ball feels so raw. And so like, 
it's it's probably his first album since the rising that really feels like it's got a very clear cohesive statement at the heart of it in the same way that like darkness did or born to run did or tunnel of love did Absolutely. and and that's i don't know i was just like when i wrecking ball just really really blew me away i mean like how many how many rockers arguably past their prime like i mean you know i mean it's like I feel like rock stars get to a certain point where, you know, they're like in their modern era. It's like, you know, I mean, even stars like, you know, Elton John and other people, you know, they're, they're still releasing albums, but as I like still enjoy that music, but it, it maybe feels more disposable than a lot of their other stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I, I sort of had assumed that Bruce had gotten to that point with, um, with like working on a dream. And, and I like working on a dream. Like, sure. I mean, if it's the late summer day and I'm sitting out in the sun, I'm having a couple of beers, I'll chuck on working on a dream. Like, you know, there's some, right. there's some good stuff on there. It's nothing nothing that would really stick with me but but then he comes out with wrecking ball and you're like oh man like we are alive death to my hometown i mean death to my hometown live i mean i'd defy anybody not to be getting up and stomping the stadium when that well, song comes up, you know? shackled and drawn right with the horns oh. and they're you know it's... and they're at the end they're kind of doing their version of a chorus line and yeah it's it's amazing um yeah, yeah. so it, it's funny yeah. The, the whole which decade, I mean, I think it's the 70s because like, if I was going to be my top five favorite Bruce Springsteen albums, I'd be like Born to Run, Tunnel of Love, Wild the Innocent, Wrecking Ball. So I'm like, oh, sorry, uh, Born to Run, Tunnel of Love, Wild the Innocent, Darkness and Wrecking Ball. So I'm like three of my top five albums come from the 70s, but then one comes from the 80s and one comes from the 2000s. So, so and, I mean, I, I yeah. You could ask the question, right, Gabriel? I mean, how cool is it that someone yeah. – in their 60s is putting out an album that a dedicated fan who loves darkness loves born to run would include wrecking ball in their discussion of top five right it's, um, like is there any other artist who's done this no like it's like and i mean and that that's not to say because again like i was i was so disappointed in the high hopes because right. like bear in mind wrecking ball uh, sorry like when i became a bruce springsteen fan working on dream was like Working on Dream had just come out when I became a Bruce Springsteen fan. Because what was it, like January 2009? Right. I became a Springsteen right. fan around the same time. So so even like Working on Dream was like, it wasn't something I've been waiting for. So to me, it was just like, oh, yeah, it's just part of the music. Like I discovered it at the same time I discovered like Darkness and Tunnel of Love and everything. Yeah. So it was a lesser album, but it wasn't like I'd been waiting for it and I'd been disappointed. And then I was waiting for a few years and then Wrecking Ball came out and I was like, holy crap, like yes. that ranks up there with the best. <laughs> yeah. But then. High Hopes came out like a year later, and I was like, "Oh, yes, another one." Yeah. And then I listened to it. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Well, just, you know, <laughs> it's like I think the guys on um the guys on uh, Springsteen Song of the Week said it's like it's like the fifth disc of tracks, basically, is yeah. like yes. what it really really is. And I I kind of like feel that way a bit, but I was I felt a little bit betrayed, I guess, that like it was it was marketed as Bruce's new album, like it, it's his it's his next studio album, and I listened to it, and I was like, but it's not. It, like all, all of his albums have a sort of theme at the core of them, you know. All right. of his albums feel like they don't feel like odds and ends and songs just thrown together because he happens to have recorded them around the same time. They feel like, and he's very open about this. He's like, you know, he there've been whole albums he hasn't released because they haven't right. felt like a cohesive whole. But I'm like, how did you think? I mean, I, I would like I'm loath to question him, but right. I'm curious as to what the central thesis of high hopes is yeah because yeah. It, it feels like odds and ends you know it, like it and feels- i do think it is um a friend of mine uh a lady named sarah hickman who's a she's now retired but she's a singer songwriter from austin and she put an album called misfits which was just a 
a collection of songs that she had done for projects that had never made an album, you know, her version of tracks. And I thought, you know, Misfits was a perfect name, you know, kind of Island of Misfit Toys, you know, and so you could have very much, High Hopes could have been like Misfits. Um, like, I love Frankie Fell in Love. You know, I, I'm, uh, This Is Your Sword is, is a great song to me. Um, you know, um, High Hopes as a cover, you know, it, right. It, but it's, it is not a, not magic that has a theme that he's trying to tell a story yeah. and very fair. Okay. Uh, I have talked to you way too long. This has been amazing. A uh, couple of uh, tough questions or not questions, final questions. Okay. So the Mary question, um, I have a friend, uh, we have a guy that's been on the podcast. He teaches, um, high school, um, advanced literature and he always has a program where they take Thunder Road and study it along with Robert, Fra Robert Frost, The Road Less Traveled. And uh, so they discuss Thunder Road as a poem. And then at the end, he asks his class, does Mary get in the car with him? So that's your question. Uh, yes, I think she does. Um, uh, I've always thought that she does. Yeah. Because it's the beginning of the journey. And, like, even though the names change, it's the journey that you sort of see play out over the course of Born to Run. And there would be no story if Mary didn't get in the car. Okay. Very well done. Good. Um, okay. So, Gabriel, um, give us how can someone hear the audio play? How can they reach you? And do you have anything new coming up that you want to plug? Um, no, it's, it's funny. You sort of you sort of caught me at, like, a slightly less um, – like, normally, like, it's funny, because if we'd spoken last year, like, I had so many things, like, always in the pipeline last year. At the moment, um, I've sort of, I did, a, I did a play at the start of the year called Moonlight. It was a sort of bluegrass musical about an Australian, uh, Australian bush ranger, which I guess for you guys is, like, the equivalent of, like, you know, a Jesse James type character. Um, and so we did this, like, bluegrass musical about him, and it was, like, the most stressful play I've ever done in my life. There will I, be a radio play version I, coming out. I am in. I am yes, in. I mean, that, just that alone, that pitch um, says, yes, sign me up. It was, uh, yeah, it was, there, there was a video on YouTube of it. Um, but it, yeah, I, I would recommend if you're interested waiting for the radio play, because it's going to be like recorded properly in a studio with a full cast, full bands, okay. all of that stuff. So right but, now, uh, make plans. We're going to meet again on a Sunday night before you're releasing it, and we're going to promote it, okay? Yeah, awesome. Okay, I'm, good, I'm yeah. So all right. Very cool. But but yeah, so so I've taken a bit of a break because that that really burnt me out. So um, so at the moment, no, I don't I don't really. I mean, I've got my third Boone Shepherd novel, which will probably come out at the end of the year. Um, outside of that, I've got nothing new I want to promote. Um, the Springsteen Radio Play you can find if you look up Movie Maintenance Presents. Um, it should come up almost straight away. It's the first episode in our series of radio plays. Um, there's other good stuff in there as well. There's um. A couple more of my plays, um, Heroes and Regression, which are very different to Springsteen. Um, a couple of plays and piece of writing by good friends of mine who are also on the podcast. Um, my friend Sean Carney, who's on Movie Maintenance with me, does this amazing Dracula radio play, basically, which I actually act in, weirdly, for, like, one scene. Um, but, yeah, it's basically a play about, like, the, the boat that Dracula takes from Transylvania to England. And the crew of the boat basically catch him and they chain him up in the, in the um, hull of the ship. And the play is basically a series of characters coming down to talk to him and him sort of Hannibal lecturing them, like manipulating them and pitting against it, pitting them against each other and everything. It's very, very cool. Um, so that's another thing that's on the same feed. But yeah, if you look up Movie Maintenance Presents or if you just look up my name and then Springsteen, it'll be one of the first things that comes up. 
Um, so yeah, it's an hour and a, hour and twenty minutes, I think, long radio play. Um, covers uh, basically it's six different moments from the releases of before before six different major albums. So you get uh, the lead up to um, to Greetings, you get the lead up to Born to Run, you get the lead up to Darkness, the lead up to Nebraska, the lead up to Tunnel of Love, and then it's kind of a final monologue that sort of encapsulates the rising period and sort of wraps the whole thing up. So I feel like if you're a Springsteen fan, you'll probably really enjoy it. Um, it's 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 not like it's not like I think you've probably guessed if you've listened this far. It's not especially laudatory, like, but it's, I tried to be very honest about, about the man and his shortcomings and what made him great. And, and I, nothing that's not in line with anything he hasn't said himself, you know? Yeah. I, I think it feels very true. Um, you know, I, I was a big fan of, uh, the love and mercy, the biopic about Brian Wilson. I think it's just oh, yeah, a good film. Yeah. Great film talks about the creative process. Um, I, 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 this film is not so much about the creative process, but I think in, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but the, the demons that Bruce faced, you know, his ambition, his friendship, his loyalty, his drive, um, you know, for those, you know, not wanting to be, if you're not with me or against me, but also that drive. And I think you do a great job of capturing the, the, the drive that he's having. And it is, it is very hard to be very successful without a drive. And, mm. um, and, and I just think you caught his humanity really well. I found it very entertaining. I've listened to it twice and, uh, I just really, really enjoyed it. So well done, sir. Uh, thank you. Thank you. It was, um, it was, yeah, it was a really, really rewarding project. Like it was terrifying because all the way through it, I was like, um, yeah. is this going to work? Like yeah. something they think a uh, uh, hardcore Springsteen fan is going to hate it because it's not kind of, it's not super kind of worshipy. But then at the same time, I'm like, uh, uh people who don't know anything about Bruce Springsteen are going to hate it because they're not going to get it. Right. But then in the end, like, I mean, it, it seemed to do really well. Like it seemed to get a really good response. So like, and, and also like even the actors I had involved, like, with the exception of kind of Chris Farrell, who played Bruce, um, who was not a very in, like he he liked Bruce Springsteen but wasn't really a fan. None of them were Bruce Springsteen fans. So and they were all actors I'd worked with before. So I kind of invited them all to do the play because they were friends. Because I knew they were good and I knew they'd do the job. And because it was sort of a a personal passion project for me, I kind of wanted to um, I kind of wanted to work with people who I really trusted. You know. Yeah. And. But even then, I was like, are they going to invest in this at all? And, and they did. And they all did a really, really good job. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm very, very proud of the radio play. I'm very proud of how it came together. And and it was, in the end, like a really, really rewarding process. Like, I didn't, and I'm, I'm glad the radio play exists because, I mean, it was a stage play. It had its season in Melbourne and it finished. And you're kind of thinking, damn, like, you know, are, are people going to be able to see this again? But then we did the radio play shortly after, and that's kind of immortalized. It means that it's there to be found by anyone, which I'm really glad for. What was the uh, feedback you got on the actual live play? I mean, did you? Did oh, it... yeah, it was. Um, it was. It was actually across the board. It was really positive. Um, it was the only thing that came up a few times was um, we had the the songs performed live between the scenes, and um, and we had them performed by uh, by the girl who played Wendy, the fictional girlfriend who's in the second scene, and Jess who played Wendy is an amazing, amazing actress, and she's a musical theater actor, got a beautiful voice, and it was it was really good. But I made her play guitar. And I think somewhere it was lost in translation that she 
isn't a very strong, she wasn't, and she'll admit this too, she wasn't a very strong guitar player. And so it kind of made the musical interludes maybe not quite as strong as they could have been. Um, but her voice was amazing. But then we, um, we, so we, we sort of shifted that into just playing the songs for the main thing. And that was something that came up a few times was the, the musical interludes sort of detracted a little bit from it, maybe because like it sort of like slowed down the process a bit, but, um, and, and sort of like it's a big ask to ask anybody to do something that isn't within their skill set, you know? Yeah. So that was, that was probably something I would have done differently if I did it again. Um, and something that is different in the radio play, but, but otherwise, like in terms of the feedback for the script, in terms of feedback for the performances and everything, I mean, you can, you can look up reviews online and everything and they're, they're all really, really positive. Um, the first night of the show, I remember, because we advertised through a few Springsteen fan clubs and, and stuff in Melbourne. And like we, like the first opening night, you know, it was completely packed and everybody's there, like wearing their like original darkness tour t-shirts and like, you know, hardcore fans everywhere. And I'm sitting there thinking, Oh no, no, like this is, and then like, the moment the play finished, I ran into the change room and I just hid because I was like, I don't want to hear what they have to say. I, I don't want to hear what they have to say. Like, I don't want to, I'd like, are they tearing the stage down outside? Are they like burning the theaters to the ground? What are they doing? And then like, they just didn't leave. And then I just heard like, Bruce, Bruce. And I kind of stuck my head around the corner and Chris had just like come off stage and they were all just like mobbing him for photos and everyone was going crazy for it. And we ended up hanging out there for like a good hour, just like talking to these Springsteen fans who just loved the play. That's and awesome. several like came again and invited friends and like they all promoted it on Facebook and everything. So, I mean, really, yeah, the feedback across the board was great, but like the feedback from the people for whom the play would speak to the most. So the most important feedback was really positive. So, good. so yeah, I was very happy with how it went in the end. Good. Very nice. Uh, very cool. Um, and your Twitter handle? Um, yeah, so I'm at Gobergmoser, so G-O-B-E-R-G-M-O-S-E-R. So if you like the play or you didn't like the play or you want to tell me either way, you can hit me up there. Um, but, yeah, that's that's where I sort of tweet my thoughts and my opinions and share stuff I'm working on and all of that. Very nice. Uh, well, if you want to be on the podcast and share your Springsteen story, I'm always looking for guests. You can send me an email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page, setlustingbruce. Check that out. And I, the show is on Twitter at setlustingbruce. And I am on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. So um, very cool. Uh, this has been wonderful. I appreciate it. Um, you know, like I said, once we get uh, the Bluegrass Jesse James uh, play, I'm in. I am yeah. in, Gabriel. So, I'll uh, the hell out of it. Yeah, so thank you, listeners. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. And I th I've been thinking about this a lot with Doctor Who lately because, you know, I think for a lot of I, – I grew up with the Russell T – not grew up with, but, like, when I got into the show was with the Russell T Davies run. And, you know, I, I loved that. Like, I've got – that was in my sort of late years of high school. I've got so many nostalgic connections to that. And then sort of in the Stephen Moffat run, I think, I think the whole time I've been waiting – or I had been waiting for 
to get that feeling back again, like the feeling that the Russell T Davies years gave me. And it never came. And there were moments where I was like, oh, it's, it's almost there. Oh, that was close to it or whatever. And it probably wasn't until last year's Christmas special, the Twice Upon a Time, where I kind of sat there and I was like, you know what? It's about time that I just accepted the show for what it is now. Because it's, because like the, the way I love the show is so tied up with a very particular time of my life. That time isn't going to come back again. So the show, the way I know it isn't going to come back again. So I might as well just kind of accept, Hey, you know what? It's a new show with a new vision and it's a show that, that, you know, rewards change and invites change even. And that's okay. And I think, you know, big franchises like Star Wars or the Avengers or whatever kind of need to be the same if they're going to survive. Yeah. And you, I think the, the thing is not giving people what they want, but giving people what they didn't know they wanted, if that makes sense. It uh, totally does. And, um, you know, Peter David um, talks a lot about that as a comic book writer, that um, sometimes when you give your fans exactly what they're asking for, they're disappointed. And the trick is to sell your own story, tell what you need to tell, and tell them, you know, what's perfect is when they give you something, you give them something they didn't know they wanted till after the fact. Um, so I, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, who's your doctor? Um, my doctor's look, I've been thinking about this quite a bit because, um, for a long time, I sort of would have said Christopher Eccleston because I mean, the, the whole thing, you never really forget your first doctor and Eccleston right. was the one who brought me into the show. But, but in terms of the doctor who was the doctor at the time, I was the most passionate about the show. It's David Tennant because yeah. I was kind of at the point where, I watched the, but I mean, Eccleston, you know, he only had a year. He didn't really have enough time to really sink into the role. And he was very good in the role and he got me into the show. So he'll always have a very special place in my heart. But like, I've just kind of, I've just finished reading um, Stephen Moffat's novelization of the day of the doctor. And that kind of has all of this, you know, extra cool, interesting stuff that sort of fleshes out the episode a lot. And, um, and yeah, the more I read it, the more I was like, you know what? Like it's, it's, I, I think, um, I think, Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi were both great doctors who were underserved by the fact that I don't think the creative vision of the show was that strong during their years. I think it tended to flip-flop year to year depending on what whim Moffat was chasing at any given time, and sometimes that worked brilliantly and sometimes it didn't. But I, I think, it, yeah, I think it, it's, it's a safe choice and it's an obvious choice, but I think it's always got to be David Tennant for me. Well, um, so I came the same thing. I went to... Um... I started watching um, – I, I, I started with Torchwood and um, went, I love this guy, Captain Jack. So I went to my best friend, uh, Huvian, friend, and said, hey, Ken, I'd like to see some episodes of Doctor Who that have Jack in it. He said, well, it's just easier. Let me give you the first season uh, with Eccleston. And you know, I fell in love with the series. Um, and as Charles and I – um, go back and watch classic episodes. I I have grown to love um, Eccleston even more, and um, I, I I agree. I love Tennant, and he is my doctor. I love Matt Smith. I have loved Capaldi, but I think the true quote unquote tr tragedy, and it's not a tragedy at all, based on the true meaning of the world, but in an entertainment tragedy is we didn't get another season of Eccleston. I, I, you know, that I wish we could have seen what else he would have done because he, 
he's a very interesting doctor. And as I rewatch those episodes, I see what he's doing and I really like what he did. Well, I mean, it kind of, it was almost like, uh, we, we, yeah, it's, it, it was almost like, I think after, you know, the show's kind of less than glamorous demise, I think you almost needed somebody like him to kind of bring it back to basics, to strip back the whimsy and to kind of give you a very kind of hard down the line, interesting enigmatic doctor before you could kind of reach, you know, your Matt Smiths or, or whatever. And the characters who were a bit more out there and zany and everything. It's not to say that Eccleston lacks eccentricity because he doesn't at all. But I mean, you always just go back and you look at Dalek. I mean, you look at that yeah. episode where he can pass the Dalek for the first time and it's this amazing performance. And it's so like, even now when I watch, I'm sitting there being like, holy crap like the, the stuff he's doing in that is stuff that i i don't think we've really seen since just kind of the rawness and the intensity of his performance i mean it's not to say that there weren't there weren't emotional tough moments with uh with tenant or um or smith or especially capaldi but eccleston just really brought the guts to the character in a in a very individual way and i think that will always be his legacy you know i absolutely agree what are you thinking about jody look i i'm I'm totally cool with a female doctor. I, I just like, I'm a, I, I've watched all the Broadchurch and I like Broadchurch and, you know, Chris Chibnall who wrote Broadchurch is now the, um, the showrunner, but I'm kind of sitting here thinking, did you sort of miss by one Broadchurch cast member? Because Jodie Whittaker in Broadchurch, I found very one note and I'm kind of like Olivia Coleman, who's the lead in Broadchurch, like, like screams doctor. Like yeah. everything about she has the she has the pathos she has the toughness she has the humor she has all the things that you need and and the hidden depth she has all the things that you need I think to to be a convincing doctor and like I'm I'm super open to Jodie Whittaker I mean we've only seen like a few seconds of her yeah. and I'm very open to it and I think you know I I think New Direction is kind of what the show's needed for a while now and so I'm looking forward to it um she wouldn't have been my choice but again you know like i'm open to whatever they do and i'm going to go into it with a completely open mind and see what happens yeah i think that's well said you know i i have not seen broad church so i don't have that feeling um you know i i but i'm excited to see what happened and i'm i'm looking i just wanted a good actor and i think she's going to do that and so i'm thrilled um perfect all right so now then, we'll start set lusting Bruce. Uh, <laughs> by the way, Gabriel, just so you know, we're getting a two for one. I'm going to cut this Doctor Who episode discussion and throw it on my Next Stop Everywhere feed. Um, and I will probably put this as a post credit sequence on the set lusting Bruce. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just just in case that my uh, my Springsteen fans are going enough, Jesse, move on, move on. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.